0: I'd like to have you turn to that psalm, and I uh, would like to uh, share some uh, thoughts that I've had on this psalm over the last few days. Uh, This psalm has come to my mind over and over again. I've been meditating on it, reflecting on it, and I thought I'd share some of the the thoughts that that came to me as I read through this psalm. Psalm 63. I'm sure you're aware that these psalms are actually folk psalms. Uh, by that I mean they were written originally by common folk. Most of these uh, uh, of the poems in the Psalter came right out of the experience of some some individual in Israel—Moses, David, Asaph, or one of the uh, members of, of Asaph's guild, Korah, others. They're really very much like the folk songs that we sing. Someone has an experience, he records it in the form of a song, and and we like it. It it reflects our experience, and so we sing it. And it makes its way through the community, and finally everybody is singing it. You hear it on the radio, you listen to it a lot, it becomes your experience. So what happened in Israel, David or some other uh, member of the community would, would write a psalm about their experience, a poem set to music. And uh, it would catch on. Others would sing it. And then eventually it made its way into, the, in, into their hymnody. It became part of their hymnal, their, their songbook. That's what the Psalter is. It's a hymn book that contains uh, Israel's songs. And as we read them, we not only understand David's experience, but we understand that his experience replicates ours. It sets up a, a kind of sympathetic vibration. We say, oh, I felt like that. I've had that experience, and then his experience and his words uh, become ours. Now, uh, this psalm is described as a psalm of David. Uh, We can generally trust the subtitles to these psalms. They're very, very old. David, of course, is uh, King David, uh, Israel's warrior, poet, uh, king, someone once described David as a man with the soul of Shakespeare and the hand-eye coordination of a Joe, uh, of a, uh, Joe Montana. And I think that well uh, describes him. It's, it, we're told that this is a psalm of David when he was in the desert, in the, in the Judean desert. Uh, I've been in the Judean desert. It looks a lot like the Owyhees, except there's a lot less vegetation. It's, it's pretty grim, Very dry. That's the place where uh, uh, California uh, Methodist Bishop James Pike lost his life. He wandered off into the desert and perished out there a few years ago. It's rugged uh, terrain. Uh, and that's where David was when he wrote this, this psalm. Now, there are at least two occasions when David was in the Judean wilderness, and we have to uh, try to find out which of those two occasions he's talking about. It seems to me that it's important. The first time he was in the wilderness was when when he was a young man. He was in his late teens or early 20s. He had been anointed king by Samuel, but not yet appointed king. And as you know, he was in the court, and Saul found out about his uh, anointing, and he became very jealous, insanely jealous. Saul finally went stark, raving mad, tried to kill David, tried to spear him, tried several times and missed. And then I suppose one day David was out wandering around and he saw, saw Saul taking target practice and he decided that it was time to leave. And uh, so he left and went off into the Judean wilderness and he wandered there for a number of years before Saul uh, was removed from the throne and, and David became king. That's the first uh, possibility. There's another uh, option and it's the one that commends itself to me. It's, it's much later in David's life when he was an old man. When he was the king, and actually he describes himself in verse eleven as the king. So I think this this is the, this is the the incident that he's referring to in the psalm. Uh, David had a son Absalom, who was the apple of his eye. Abs- Absalom actually was a renegade; he was a rebel. Da- David had a soft spot for Absalom all through his life. Didn't see through the young man. He's really a very wicked young man. And he carried favor with the people, courted uh, their approval, told them that if they just made him king, then he would listen to their, uh, to their complaints. Sounds very contemporary. Uh, I, you know, I, I have an ear open to the people. And eventually, uh, he was able to drive David into, into exile. David left his family. He left his home. He left his throne. He left his dearest friends. He left the ark. He left the priest Sadok, and the other priests. And he fled across the Jordan River and was in the, in the Judean wilderness for several months. He fled not out of fear, the text tells us, that David wasn't afraid. He wanted to avoid the, the, the uh, massacre that would have taken place in Jerusalem had there been a siege of the city. And so to spare the people, he, he fled. And here he was all by himself out in the desert. And he wrote this song. Now, David had been in the desert before. He, you know, he knew how to take care of himself in the desert. And when he describes himself as lost and lonely and thirsty in the desert, he's really, I, I don't really think he's, he's thinking about the desert per se. The desert was typical of the spirit of his soul. His soul was thirsty, hungry, longing for something, yearning for something more. And what we want to do this morning is listen to his longings. It's a good thing to do. We ought to do that periodically. We ought to take stock of our longings, and look at what we yearn for, and see where that's leading us and what it means. Now, uh, let's look at the psalm. It's a psalm of David when he was in the desert of, of Judah. O oh God, he says, you, you are my God. Earnestly or early in the morning I seek you. Oh God, you are my God, he says. Uh, David is uh, finding himself. And when you're lost, that's that's the first thing you do. You, you locate yourself by the coordinates on a map. You try to find out where you are, and that's what David is doing. He's centering himself on God. And he reminds himself that God, he uses the generic name for God, the big name for God that describes him as in his, in, his creator. God, he says, you're my God. Remarkable simplicity but audacity at the same time. The, the creator, God of the universe. The God of outer space and, and the, the God who manages the, the molecules, the unseen molecules. David says he's, he's my God, he's my God. Now how can he say that with such assurance? I'm sure that a lot of you, a lot of you would... Uh, would like to be able to say this morning that the creator of the universe is your God in a personal way. Well, uh, uh, David would think back upon God's covenant love and the promise that he had made to to his people, those that that called on his name, those that believed in him. Remember the story of Abraham? We talked about Abraham a few months ago when, when we were in Romans 4. God took Abraham out into the stars Pointed out that he would have more descendants than there are stars in the sky, and 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 we're told that Abraham believed God. That was Abraham's religion. All there was to it. God revealed His word, and Abraham said, "Amen, I believe you." And uh, the text says that that God reckoned Abraham to be righteous. In other words, the the relationship between God and and Abraham was set. It was fixed. It was determined. He would be his friend. In fact, he put it that way. I will be your God, and you will be my, my man, so to speak. I'm yours, and you're mine, forever. And, and that came about simply because Abraham believed God. He took God at his word. Whatever God said, he, he just believed it. Didn't have much information. But he believed what information he had, and God said, that's my kind of man. I'll be your God. You're, you're my man, he says. Now, the implications for that are enormous, that idea of, of God being someone's God and then there being his, his, his person, his man or his, his woman. Uh, in, in Matthew 22, there's, there's a remarkable use of that of that idea. Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees over the idea of the resurrection. Now, pardon me, the Sadducees. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, you know, which is why they are called Sadducees. They're sad, you see, because there's no resurrection. Actually, that's not true. They're, they're named for the Zadokites, but makes a better story the other way. Uh, anyway, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and, and they, so they concocted this story about a woman who had seven husbands. And, you know, wh- whose wife will she be in, in heaven? They, they thought they had Jesus on the horns of a dilemma, and, and Jesus said, H- haven't you fellows ever read the Scriptures? Don't you men ever read the Bible, he said. God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he just turned on his heel and walked away. You have to stop and think about that for a minute because that occurs, that statement occurs in the book of Exodus, which is long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died. And God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not say, I was. I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they're still living. And and the point to be made of that is that once God becomes your God, he's your God forever. Not just for this life, but forever. David knew that. Psalms are full of David's uh, assurance that his destiny was fixed and certain. This notion that God had taken him by the hand, was going to walk through life with him, and then, and then when he died, he was going to take him, is, is the word that David uses. He's going to take him to be with him forever and enjoy him forever. God was David's friend forever. And that's why David could say with such assurance, Oh, God, he says, you're my God. And that's, that's the kind of simplicity and audacity that, that we can have as well. Earnestly, he says, I seek you, earnestly. I, I, I think the King James has the better translation here. I wish they had not, the NIV had not uh, changed the uh, the text because the verb, or uh, actually the first three words, uh, the adverb and the uh, first three and the verb itself, in the last part of verse one, ought to be translated, uh, I get up early in the morning. It's based on the Hebrew word for dawn. We have the same idiom in English, somewhat similar idiom. We say it dawns on us. But David is using it in a different way when he says, I, I dawn on you. He just, he means when he gets up in the morning, that's the first thing he thinks about. What's the first thing you think of when you get up in the morning? If your mind is like mine, I'm already thinking about all the stuff I have to do through the day and or if I've gone to bed uh, concerned about something, that's what pops into my mind. I start organizing myself to get ready for the day. Or I start worrying over what I can't do through the day, can't change. That does a lot of good, but that's, that's my tendency. Instead of fixing on God, David says, the first thing I do in the morning, first thing I do is to fix on God, center on Him. Remind myself that God is my God, not the God out there, but my God, my friend, the, the one who walks with me through, through life. Someone pointed out to me once that, that our, our first thought determines our predominant thoughts through the day. And that's true. That's true. If we center on God, we, we may drift away from him from time to time. It's impossible to think about God all day. But if we start the day centering on him, the, the, it's much easier for us to go back to that point of that reference point again, that, that parameter, and, and to center ourselves again on God. That's what David is doing. He'd wake up in the morning, crawl out of his sleeping bag. It was cold out there in the desert. He was away from home. He missed his family. Uh, he was in disgrace. People were saying vulgar, unkind, cruel things about him. We know that from other psalms. Uh, lies had been spread around the uh, the city of Jerusalem. His reputation was at stake, and his mind would would go back to those things, and he would start ruminating o- over them. and And then he, he would stop himself, and he'd, and he'd center on God, and he'd remind himself that God is his God. I, I commend that to you tomorrow morning, when you wake up. It's a great day to start. Great way to start out the day. He, he he talks about his his hunger and his thirst. Here, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's actually, as I said, a, a picture of of David's thirsty thirsty soul. He was longing for something, and he realized that his longing was for God. See, that's the important thing to realize. We all have. Have longings. We yearn for something. We hope for something. What we don't realize, what's unrecognized, uh, is that 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 longing is really a longing for God. To paraphrase Augustine, "Oh God, God has made us for Himself, and He has He has given us those longings for Him." That's where they came from. There's an interesting story that John tells about Jesus making his way through Samaria, ran across this dear woman who had a number of husbands, hadn't worked out well. She could get married, get divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced. Finally, she gave up the the marriages, and she just lived with one man after another. And Jesus met her on the well, and he recognized that her hunger was not a hunger for, for a man, but it was something deeper. It was a hunger for God. And that's why Jesus said, if you just knew who I who I am, then you would come to me and, and you'd find everlasting life. You'd find something that would satisfy you forever. The water that I give you, he says, will, will 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 continue to satisfy. See, he saw what her need was. Her longing wasn't for a man, she thought it was. Her longing was for God. And that's why David puts it this way Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul. Thirst. For what? For you. It's a thirst for God. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. And then his mind goes back to the past. Um, he, he remembers what it was like when he was in Jerusalem. We, we should supply before verse 2, So longing are in the same way in which my soul thirsts for you. I I thirsted for you in the sanctuary. So longing I have gazed at you in the sanctuary. And beheld your power and your glory, because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will will praise you. You'll notice that... uh, those are the words that we sang just, just a moment ago. David said, I used to stand outside the sanctuary and gaze at you. Now, what David was talking about was the little box that was located in the in the inner sanctuary. Israel's worship took place in a, a kind of a tent-like structure made out of badger skins. And there were a number of implements for worship out in the front and then within the tent itself in the inner recesses of the tent there was a little square room actually the tent was set up like their homes were set up that's the way their tents were organized they had a a room out in front and then a sort of an inner sanctum where they could get away from it all and in that room was where god symbolically dwelt now david knew that god didn't really dwell there because he's out in the desert fellowshipping and worshiping God. He wasn't at the temple, but but it reminds him that he used to go to, the, to uh, pardon me, the tabernacle. The temple hadn't been built yet. It reminded him of those days he used to go to the tabernacle and just gaze at the ark. He couldn't see the ark because the veil was in the way, but he could see the staves of the ark extending out through the side of the little room. And he would look at that little box about the size of a footlocker, and it would remind him of, of God's presence in Israel. It's what kept him going was the knowledge that that God was Emmanuel, God was with him. You see, that attitude toward the ark is what set David apart from, from other men. It's what set him apart from Saul. Saul was, a, was a, a totally self-centered man, totally fleshly, carnal man, had no interest in God or the things of God. In contrast, David longed for God his whole life. When 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 Samuel went to Jesse's house to anoint Jesus uh, David as uh, as king, you, you know what happened. Jesse brought out all of his sons. They were all big, tall, kingly-looking fellows, and Samuel looked them over. and God said, "He's not among them. My man's not among them." Is there anybody else around? Jesse says, "Well, there's uh, David out in the sheep. He's sort of the run of the family." When you put David's genealogy together, you come to the conclusion he might have even been illegitimate. He certainly was an outcast, sort of a pariah. They had him out there hurting sheep. Didn't even bring him in when Samuel asked for the family to be gathered. So they, they found David, they brought him in, and God said, that's the man. Why? Because all of David's life, as he tells us in Psalm 132, he longed for God. He yearned for the ark. He knew it was down in Kirith jerim He wanted it back up in the middle of Israel because it symbolized again the centrality of God in in their lives. And that's why David, the first thing David did when he became king was to go down to Kiriath-Jerim, get the ark, bring it up to Jerusalem. Not because he had some magic, some concept that God magically dwelt in that box, but because he knew what it symbolized. It symbolized the presence of God in Israel and the indwelling God in his life. And, and, and that's what he's talking about. I, I, used to, I used to stand outside the sanctuary and gaze at that box. And I would think about your power. I'd meditate upon your power, what you can do. David would think back over the miraculous deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. There's no analogy for that anywhere in history, before or after the, the, that event. God took a whole nation, two and a half million people, delivered them out of slavery, and took them to another country. God did that. That's an indication of his power. He opened the way through the, through the Red Sea, and he, and he parted the Jordan River, and he drove the Canaanites out before them. There they were in their walled cities, and the Israelites had never even seen a walled city up to this time. They didn't have them in Egypt, much less learned how to besiege walled cities. And God drove out the Canaanites. See, as he put it, I sent the hornet ahead of you to, to drive them out. It's as an indication of of God's power. And David would stand outside that ark and he'd look at it and he'd think about God's power. It's a great thing to do. First thing in the morning, you wake up and you say to yourself, Oh God, you're my God. And you start thinking about what he can do, what he's capable of doing. If he can move and order universes, he can order your life. If he can protect little Israel, he can protect you you from all harm. And then he would think about God's glory. Uh, glory is the word for the sum total of God's attributes. His mind would run through God's character like strings on a pearl. A uh, pearls on a string. He, he would think of, of of his of his holiness, of his purity, of his goodness, of his mercy, of his kindness, of his grace. And then his mind would would fix on one fact, one aspect of God's glory. Verse three. Your love. Your love is better than life. You know, the greatest fact in the world is is this, that Jesus loves us, that God loves us. I don't know why he loves us. As I've said before, horses are a lot stronger, dogs are a lot friendlier, pheasants are a lot prettier. Why does God love us? He just does. That's all. You know, David was Israel's bad boy. If you know anything about David's life, you know he did some some terrible things. Sometimes he's filled with proud pride, he had trouble with his tongue, he had terrible temper, problems controlling his sex life. He was in difficulty most of his life. But what God saw was the heart of the man, his devotion to God, and God loved him. I, I can't think of any other aspect of god's glory that, that's more precious to me and ought to be more precious to us than the fact that that God loves us as the as the song goes I'm so glad that our Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given how's um, it go from there? I knew I shouldn't have tried to memorize it I should have written it down. I am so glad that our Father in Heaven tells of His love in the book He has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest—that Jesus loves me. See, that's what David thought of. That's what he fixed on. Uh, his son certainly didn't love him. There were a lot of people in the nation that didn't love him. He was having real troubles with, with his wife about this time, and you know. It, but but God loved him. God loved him. Now, he says in verse 6, On my bed I remembered you. I, Oh, excuse me. I forgot to comment on verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. David had nothing at that point. And yet he had everything. You notice how he puts it. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. It's as though he had everything, even though he had nothing, because he had God. And therefore, he says in verse 6, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the, through the watches of the night. David had, has the same problem that you and I have. Some nights he couldn't sleep. He tossed and turned, and it was more than, than just the fact that the ground was hard. It was because he was anxious and concerned and, and fearful for his nation and for his family, for his own life at times. He couldn't sleep well, and the hours seemed to pass by slowly. Uh, the The idea that he meditates upon God through the watches of the night stresses the slow progress of the hours. the The, uh, the night seemed interminable. But in the midst of it all, he kept thinking about the goodness of God and about God's love for him. Now, again, when I don't know how you handle these sleepless nights. Sometimes I have them, and I, I try to get my mind off of the things that I'm worried about, but it doesn't work very well. My, my mind will, I'll, I can distract myself for a few moments, but sooner or later I, I come back to the problem, and I tend to try to work it out. I, I scheme and I dream and I plan and I think, well, I can handle it this way or I can do this or that or the other. And I forget that what I'm really doing is depending upon myself instead of centering upon God. What David says is that when he wakes up in the middle of the night and he's overwhelmed by his problems, he, he just remembers God. He meditates on God. It's the word it's used for a cow chewing its cud in the Old Testament. He ruminates over over God's glory and God's goodness and In God's power, and that's the way he passes the night. On my bed, I remember you and I meditate on you through the watches of the night because you have been my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I stay close to you. Uh, The word for stay close, that's translated as stay close, is the same word as translated cleave in Genesis 2. A man shall leave mother and father and cleave to his wife. I'm going to stick to you, David says. Your right hand grasps me. God has taken his hand and he's never he's never going to let go. Uh, last uh, summer, I I came to understand this phrase, "the shadow of your wings," in a way that I'd never never thought of it before. I, I whenever I read the psalm, I guess I thought of a mother hen clucking and the little chicks running and getting under the shelter of her of her wings but i saw it in a new light a few months ago carolyn and i were uh, on the north fork of the of the boise and uh, uh, we didn't want to fish so we just got out our our folding rocking chairs and set them up under some trees and got our books out and we we're sitting there reading and it's just one of those wonderful days a deer walked across the river waited actually the water was up to its chest and He waited right across in front of us, and we were just fascinated by the thing. The whole day was just a wonderful day, and and at the end we were putting all of our stuff away. And Carolyn spotted an eagle in the the top of a tree, very big nest, and you could see that white head sticking up, big bald eagle. I don't know anything about the nesting habits of eagles. I don't know if they have chicks that time of the year or not, or eaglets, whatever eagles have. But um, we, I. I, uh, Uh, thought I saw some little brown heads sticking up, you know, and you could hear all this racket in the nest, so there must have been some little eaglets in there. And I don't know whether she saw something in the sky or whether our movement alarmed her or or what, but uh, she came up out of that nest and she cocked her head at us and and then she jumped up on the side of of the nest. And uh, she kind of ruffled up her feathers like this and, and spread them out like that over the nest. And all of a sudden... I thought of this song. That's what David is talking about. Now, if I were a little eaglet and uh, a hawk was flying around the sky or some people were down below that looked threatening, I don't know about you, but I would stick close to mama. Now, that's what David is saying. When, when the times get tough, when they get hard, when when the, we have no resources left, when we're at the end of our rope, stick close to God. He's going to shelter us in his wings. He's going to protect us. That's a great thing to think about when you're thinking about your business and it's beginning to fail. Are you thinking about your health and it's failing? Are you thinking about your marriage and you're threatened and frightened by what's happening in, in your marriage? To wake up in the morning, to fix on God, and to remember that he's sheltering you with his wings. And stick close to him, cleave to him. What craziness it would be for a little eagle to flop out of that nest and try to make it on its own. The best thing is just to stay in the nest, stay close to mama. The best thing is to stay close to God, let him protect us. Carolyn has a wonderful bear story. She told it at the the last women's meeting or the one before last. I wish I'd thought of it. But she's, I'm going to tell it again for those of you that didn't hear it. Uh, Carolyn is uh, uh, a little bit nervous around bears. Uh, so am I, but I don't want to admit it. And uh, we have a tent trailer that we camp in. And uh, last summer we went up to Canada. And I, we never worried much about black bears, but in Canada they have grizzly bears. And that, there you got something to worry about. And there were quite a few grizzlies around. Uh, in fact, it made me real nervous fishing with uh, bears uh, close by, and and uh, we we came out of uh, on one particular trip to buy some stuff. We hadn't been in town for a while, picked up a newspaper, and heard about someone that had been attacked by a bear just 50 miles away from where we were, so that didn't make us feel real good. So, you know, it, it, wherever I went, I was looking over my shoulder. In the middle of the night, when I, I went out in the dark, I was checking all the dark spots with my flashlight, and... Uh, uh, we were a little bit nervous, but there was one occasion where where we were closer to a bear than we have ever been in our whole life. We were about as far as from here to the end of that uh, that uh, pulpit, and we weren't scared at all because we were inside the car. And that's what David is talking about. Oh, they may take away your health, they may take away your home, they may take away your business, they may take away all your money, they may take away your marriage, but they can't really hurt you. Do you understand that? They can't really hurt you. They may take away your reputation, they may, may t- make your life miserable. You, you may have a very hard hard life. You may have to bear the heat of the day for the rest, rest of your life. God may choose you uh, choose that for you, but they can't really hurt you. Not really. That's why David says your love is better than life. That's why Revelation says that certain people who don't love their lives into death. That is, you know, they don't care about this life. They don't care about their possessions. Doesn't matter. Because they're safe and secure. See, understanding that, understanding that God loves you and cares for you, gives you a different perspective on everything. It gives you a different perspective on your family. It gives you a different perspective on your marriage. You're willing to endure a hard marriage because you know this isn't all there is. God's going to love you through the rest of your natural life. And when you go to be with him, you're going to experience an eternity of fellowship with him. So it's all right to suffer and to, to have a hard time of it in your marriage and to stick with it even though it hurts because this isn't all there is. It gives you a different attitude toward your possessions. I'll always remember that dear woman on television a couple of years ago, her house burned down. She was being interviewed by a a Channel 6 uh, uh, reporter. And she was weeping and she said, everything in this life is gone. And my heart just went out to her because I realized that's all she had was this life. And her house burned down and she lost everything. And I couldn't help when I thought of that story, thinking of, of, uh, of Val. She's not here this morning, so I can, I can talk about her. You know, In this last year, she lost her husband. His early 40s. She lost her husband. She right now has a, has a family member that's critically ill, that's dying. And three days before Christmas, her house burned down. And I talked to her last Sunday, and, and her attitude was, it's no big deal. Because I, I have God, you see. And I, I've seen her Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday sitting right there, studying the Word, worshiping God in her, in her heart, quietly going on about her business. Doesn't make much of a splash, but God is her life. You don't have to talk to her very long without seeing that. She can go on because God's love is better than life. Now, that's what David is, is saying. Thank goodness, our time is almost up. Verse 9, they who seek my, my soul will be destroyed. Interesting contrast between 8 and 9 is not apparent in the English text, but David says in verse 8, my soul will stay close to you. Verse 9, they who seek my soul will be destroyed. I'm going to stick close to you no matter what threats I may encounter. They cannot touch my soul. They may go and be going after it. But... Uh, they, they, they won't hurt me, and furthermore, they're going to destroy themselves. Actually, the word just means come to nothing. Uh, that's the way the Psalms describes the fate of, of, of the ungodly. The way of the ungodly will perish, just pinches out into nothing, just ceases to exist after a while. They will go down to the depths of the earth, they will die. They would be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. The jackals were the final scavengers, like, like turkey buzzards are today. This is one of those uh, sections that we describe as Im- imprecatory, cursings, that are brought down on the uh, curses that are brought down on the heads of, of God's enemies. Some people read these and say, "Well, that's sub-Christian." Once we get into the New Testament, we don't have to. Talk about our enemies that way. We we, we can love our enemies, and that's true. We can, but you have to remember that Paul is the one that said of those who try to undermine the the gospel, he says, may they be damned. It's the word he uses. Uh, Very, very harsh uh, word of condemnation for those that try to destroy the gospel. David and Paul are not talking about common... Uh, garden variety unbelievers. He's not talking about just the average man or woman on the street who doesn't have any interest in God. He's talking about people who are trying to destroy God's plan to bring salvation to the world. And David is talking about them not as his enemies, but as God's enemies. David was the key to God's plan to bring salvation to Israel. We could talk about this all morning. It's a very important uh, concept in Old Testament thinking that that the king represented the down payment uh, of, of the uh, uh, fullness that God planned to bring to Israel, the Messiah. And it would be through David's line. And anyone who threatened David and tried to destroy David was, was ultimately doing so because they were trying to destroy God's plan to save the whole world through the Messiah. So David calls down curses on them because they were God's enemies. He himself didn't take vengeance on them. He, he just saw them as God's enemies. But in contrast, he says, the king will rejoice in God. Does that bring back memories? Is that reminiscent? The king will rejoice in God. When I read that, I thought immediately of Paul's statement in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. He's not saying that we ought to somehow adopt a a Pollyannish attitude toward life when everything is grim. Just paste a smile on our face. Just be joyful. He's saying, find your joy in the Lord. Find your satisfaction in the Lord, which is exactly what what David is saying in Psalm 63. You're not going to find it any other place. So uh, rejoice in the Lord. The king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him. They'll keep on praising him while the mouths of liars will be silenced in in Sheol. In other words, David is saying, I'm going to be with him forever. They're not. They, They will... They'll have the destiny that, that they've chosen. But I'll, I'll be with him forever. Uh, it reminds me again of, of the comment that J.I. Packer's friend made. I've, I've uh, shared this with you before. When he realized that he was, his employment at a, a university where Packer, where this man, Packer, taught, was going to be terminated, because of his belief in Christ... His comment was, well, it doesn't matter because I have known God and they have not. That's what David is saying. Let them do their worst. Let them take everything away from me. It doesn't matter because I know God and they don't. It's not a blast of egoism. He's not saying that I deserve it. David knew he did not deserve God's love or his grace. He knew he didn't. But he knew that God was faithful to his promise. He said, I'll be your God. I'll be your friend. Take you by the hand, lead you through life. And at the end of it, I'm going to take you to heaven and love you forever. You'll be with me forever. And that's why David could say his love is better to me than life. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. Now, I know my time is up, and I'm only going to take about a minute to do this, but I just have to say it, okay? Because this, I, I've been leading up to this for the whole, whole time, and, and I, I, I just have to say it. Something happens to uh, men when they get to be about 40. Uh, they, as my father used to say, take leave of their senses. They act like they've been dropped on their head from a great height. Uh, They walk off from their families and their wives, and uh, they uh, start dressing as though they were 20 years of age, and they usually end up with some much younger woman. And they always say the same thing. I mean, honestly, I've been in the ministry now for 27 years, uh, almost half my life, and uh, a lot of my friends have gone through this routine, and I've talked to a lot of people, and I, c- I could write the script for them. In fact, I get the impression that that's what they're doing. I mean, they're mindlessly following some script. They always say the same things. I've got to find myself. i got to be me, they say. You know, you know uh, th- that's what they always say. And ultimately, they end up in the arms of someone who is not their wife. Whoops, excuse me. <clears throat> so angry, I'm throwing paper clips. <clears throat> and you know what they say to their wives? And sometimes it's wives who say this to their husbands, but more often than not, it's men who say this. You know what they say to their wives? I've never loved you. I've never loved you. And I say, nonsense. I mean, you stuck it out for 20 years with that woman. You went through the birth of of two or three children. You've suffered and agonized and struggled together through things. And you're telling me you don't love No, I've never loved her. I say, nonsense. Sure, you've had problems. Everybody has problems in their marriage. I don't know anybody who doesn't have conflict. There's something wrong with you if you don't. That's that's the name of the game. You've got to work on these problems. But to say I never loved you is unmitigated. Nonsense. It's not the problem. Nor is the problem that this person needs time to find themselves. You know what it is? And, you know, it's too, it's too easy just to define it as simple lust. Sometimes that's all it is. But by and large, it's much deeper than that. What it is, is that through life, a man thinks that something will satisfy him other than God. It will be his business or it will be his marriage or it will be his children or it will be uh, hunting or fishing or snowmobiling or a cabin in the mountains or a condo in uh, in McCall or, you know, something will satisfy. And so they try this, they try this, they try this, they try this, and nothing satisfies. And G.K. Chesterton is right when we depart from the living God we will substitute an infinite number of gods for him, and none of them satisfy. And finally, a man gets to be about 40 or 45, and he takes stock, and he looks at his life, and he says, I'm unsatisfied. I've got to get out of this marriage. I've got to go find myself. And, 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 you know, and there's some other woman out there who has demonstrated some interest in him, and it appeals to his ego. And before long, he's in bed with her, and that's the end of the marriage. And I can tell you, it doesn't, work. I've talked to men that have gone through it. And if you men are going through it today, I want to tell you that nothing will satisfy you but God himself. That's what your heart is longing for. I don't care if you're a Christian or not a Christian at this point in your life. The longing that you have is for God. And only God will satisfy you. And as Isaiah puts it, I just ran across this wonderful verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 28. He says, God is waiting to be gracious. That's in the Old Testament, if you can believe that. That's the Old Testament that has law and order. God is waiting to be gracious. He stands there with his arms out saying, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. So satisfy your soul in Him. Satisfy your hungers and your thirsts with a drink from our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for someone like David who had the who went through these experiences, toughed it out, learned what it what it means to know and experience your adequacy, and then shared it with us, so that we don't have to go through. These things and make the same mistakes that others have made. Lord, forgive us for our our thinking that somehow we can substitute something other than uh, than your life and your presence and your love. Forgive us, Lord, for not taking seriously what you've said in in your word about the significance of life and and what constitutes real life. Help us, Lord, to love you with all of our hearts and find the the peace and satisfaction that we've been looking for for so many years. Help us to put our roots down into you. Help us to cleave to you, to cling close to you, to get to know you, and to respond to to the great love that you have for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.